0: Welcome back, everyone, to another amazing episode of For the Love of Money. I'm really excited about today's episode because I'm sitting down with Tyler Gage. And Tyler is the founder of Runa, the energy drink company. Matter of fact, he just sold it. So congratulations to you, Tyler. And if you're not familiar with that company, the company was started because of his time spent with an indigenous tribe in the rainforest. And you're going to love his story about how it shifted him as a human being and literally moved him to create this company and the why behind it. We also talk about the power of dreams and the power of subconscious and what it has to do with your business. We talk about what fair trade is and what a B Corp is, two things that do not get talked about enough. And you're going to love his view of money both before And then after his time spent living in the rainforest with these tribes, and after his time spent becoming a successful entrepreneur, it's been quite a journey for him. So sit down, get ready, listen up, because this episode is full of so much value and so many things that we often don't get to talk about. All right, Tyler, my friend, I'm so glad that Mike connected us. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. I'm glad you connected us to too.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I did a bunch of research on you, and I freaking love your story and everything you're up to, so I can't wait to get to that part. To that part. But Thanks, typically, man. I start all of my podcasts with a little bit of rapid fire just to let the audience get to know you in a hurry. Are you down for it? I like it. Yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. And listen, if there's anything good, we'll circle back to it. So let's start really easy. Where'd you grow up?
1: I grew up outside of Berkeley, California.
0: All right, and where do you live now?
1: I live in Bellingham, Washington. It's about halfway between Seattle and Vancouver.
0: Very cool. And favorite quote?
1: Oh, favorite quotes. Hmm. Um, Well, you know, one I've been using a lot lately, I'm not sure if it's an absolute favorite, is um, it takes energy to move energy.
0: Ooh, that's awesome. I love that. Okay, what is one of your superpowers? This is sort of a semi-diabolical
1: superpower, but I'm—I would put myself in like the upper upper percentiles of multitasking.
0: That's a good superpower. Um,
1: I'm not—I wouldn't say that's the one I'm maybe most proud of, but uh, yeah, probably that and um, learning random physical skills quickly. Uh, I grew up riding unicycles and doing random clown stuff, and feel like I have a bit of a proclivity for learning uh, physical-based tricks relatively quickly.
0: Oh my God, that's wild! Do you still ride a unicycle? <laughs>
1: I do. Yeah, I'm actually I'm trying to like get my uh, pin juggling skills up a few notches at the moment.
0: Oh, my God. That is OK. We might need footage of that. What is one of your favorite books?
1: Uh, probably the book that I recommend. One of the books I give away and recommend the most is a book called 1491. You ever heard of this book? No. What is it? It's amazing. I mean, I'm obviously, my path is very entwined with the indigenous cultures of South America. And this book is an unbelievably vivid portrait of what the Americas were like before Columbus got here. Um, and it basically paints these just exceptionally vivid portraits of what civilization was like at scales not often conceived of you know i think people assume that the americas were these kind of sparsely populated territories that were actually these you know extremely populated and somewhere between probably 50 and 100 million people were between north and south america and just the portraits of the incan empire and the um aztec and the whole thing it's incredible. I that's recommend it. Highly. Awesome!
0: I'm totally going to check it out. Actually, that's a great title for it too. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. What is the last thing that kept you up at night?
1: Uh, the last thing that kept me up tonight, probably last night was thinking about time management. And I'm, um, I have my hands in a few different pots, uh, and some kind of a few different ventures that I'm involved in and feeling slightly stretched and been just wondering, when and how I might phase out of one and if I'm going to double down on another and, uh, you know, how that loops in with reality of being a dad soon and that whole puzzle. So I would say that's the,
0: that's the Man, main Man, I feel you on all of that, actually. That's one of the things that keeps me up once in a while, too. Not with the dad part. That's soon to come for us, but, but not quite nice. in the works like it is for you. Congratulations in advance, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A couple more real quick here. Who is someone who's changed your life?
1: One guy that immediately comes to mind who is very instrumental in getting me on this path uh, is a man named Mark Allen. He's the six-time Hawaii Ironman champion. <clears throat> a bit of a long story short, I was an athlete in college and you know felt kind of depressed and was looking for sort of other routes into spirituality. And athletics was a, a background for me. And uh, he has this incredible story, basically training with this indigenous um, group in Mexico and learning these sort of mental training techniques and spiritual development uh, to the point where he won the Freaking Hawaii Ironman six times. Um, and just sort of reached out to him on a whim and he invited me to spend some time with him and his teacher. And that was one of my main, uh, touch points into the Amazon and the path that I've been on.
0: Wow. That's wild. What is one of your all time favorite accomplishments this far?
1: (sighs) Oh man. Um, favorite accomplishments. Well, I would say that probably what makes me the most rewarded at the moment. Um, I just sold the company, the first company I started, Runa, which got acquired two weeks ago. And uh, I think the part of it, though, that is rewarding is feeling, feeling close to friends, investors, former colleagues, just the like the sort of friendship that has um, penetrated through ups and downs, difficulties, and you know, comparison to friendships and relationships that are lost. Versus those ones that really um, just deepen and deepen through thick and thin. I think that feels extremely rewarding to have built something and been part of something where where those kind of connections can
0: prevail. I could totally imagine and congratulations. Can't wait to talk about that story in a little bit here. A couple more real quick ones. One regret you might have? Oh, so many, so many regrets. <laughs>
1: uh, oh, man. Um, well, maybe to go to like just very practical businessy for a second, it's one of the things I look back on. In the history of building RUNA, one of the most fundamental mistakes I felt like we made was not hiring more experienced senior executives earlier on. We could drill back into that, but it's one of the things I look back at like fundamental things we could have done that would have accelerated our growth. Um, it just made life a whole lot easier if I would have bit the bullet to pay somebody more money and brought in somebody with more experience earlier
0: on. I am totally guilty of that too, by the way. So I feel you there. Last That's rapid fire question. What is something generous right. that you have done recently?
1: <sighs> generous. Um, I've been spending a good chunk of time with a buddy of mine who is just graduated from medical school and is, um, very interested in, um, addiction treatment, uh, business models. Um, and spending time with him, coaching him and just helping him like think through things and, It felt super rewarding, but I think it's really helpful for him coming from the medical background and trying to think through more entrepreneurial opportunities. So that's been a a fun way to help my buddy out.
0: Man, I love that. That's one of the best ways that people can possibly give is their time and and their knowledge like that. That's awesome. All right, so now that we had a chance to get to know you a little bit, uh, let's dig a little bit deeper into the interview. And the thing I'm dying to ask you Mm -hmm. about is your experience living in the Amazon rainforest with an indigenous tribe. So you got to tell us. Let's start out with that story.
1: So... So, yeah, after meeting Mark and basically getting fascinated by the world of um, indigenous languages, indigenous plants, just feeling like having grown up in the suburbs, there was so much richness and wisdom and intelligence was really a word that that came to me a lot in these cultures and the ways that they um, relate to the natural world specifically. So I spent a couple years on and off in college down in Peru, in the Ucayali region of the Peruvian Amazon, with a tribe called the Shipibo, uh, who's a relatively large tribe, um, quite known for their knowledge of medicinal plants and spent a bunch of time studying the people language, uh, a lot of time studying their ceremonial practices and was really deeply fascinated and deeply touched by um, how sophisticated their relationship is between their language, their myths, their understanding of dreams, their understanding of plants. And just this vibrancy of life that felt so palpable. And it felt like in the West, I think a lot of us, you know, struggle with depression and anxiety, these things where we feel like there's just that that pulse of life that's kind of, you know, woven under the surface, but not really accessible. I felt like down there, it was just in my face in a lot of ways. And, you know, not that there wasn't lots of difficulty and tragedy and, um, you know, all sorts of stuff. I, I I'm very much against this idea of, you know, painting Indigenous people as these sort of pristine, perfect beings in the middle of the rainforest. Um, but there what there was like a a life, like a pulse of life that really touched me um and transformed me a lot as a young person. And uh I think a lot of the lessons I learned that came back into the entrepreneurship path around just how do you navigate chaos. <laughs> you know, they live in the most lethal ecosystem in the world. Um and they have very sophisticated techniques for hunting and walking in the jungle and listening and um, practices which I found very <clears throat> translatable in a lot of ways to building a business where every day it's a chaotic haywire environment with lots of uncertainty and teeming with life and lots of competition and um, I think I, I've learned a ton uh, in probably ways I'm conscious of and a lot of ways I'm unconscious of just from being immersed in that way of being
0: so let's talk about that. What there's so many parallels and, and I think that's what your new book is about. Mm-hmm. By the way, I just ordered it on Amazon like an hour nice. ago. I'm gonna, Thank it's you. gonna be my awesome. vacation read when we leave in a oh, couple cool. days here. Oh, I love it. I can't wait. And so you're you're drawing these parallels to life surviving in the Amazon rainforest to, you know, startups and being an entrepreneur. Can you share some of those with us?
1: Yeah, so you know, in the book I, I talk a lot about on the one side, just the sort of framework. You know, I think understanding the the philosophical framework of that. Um, of that edge space. You know, it's really, I think we as humans have sort of different realities where there's a sort of operating mode that we're in when we're in our comfort zone. And there's another operating mode when we're outside of our comfort zone and at that edge of what we think is possible, which especially in the world of spirituality or I think in business then challenges the, our own understanding of who we are, who we think we are, who we think we are in the world, who we are to our employees, our investors, our suppliers. It's a, it's a very slippery ground between, you know, the business itself and its reflection on the deepest parts of who we are. So I think understanding that and sort of looking at business first and foremost as a personal growth journey, um, you know, I think if you want to, you want to um, learn how to grow yourself, growing a business is a really great mirror for it, in my experience. <clears throat> and then a lot of the tools that I um, relate are around how to use, you know, I call the full tool belt. You know, so in the Amazon, they're I think maybe not to popular misconception, it's not all sort of intuition and spirituality and just trust your, trust your gut. They're extremely um, analytical in many ways. They're very scientific, I would say, in the ways that they you know, test and assess and gather information and watch and learn. But then they also have this space and this relationship with um, using parts of their sensibility that don't fit in that purely rational framework. Um, so on, on one level, there's very specific tools around you know, how to be effective in the uh, more clinical research mindset of a uh, of business. And then a lot on the intuitive side, <clears throat> you know, everything from ways to use dreams, ways to use journaling practices, fear inventories, um, specific dream practices to try and allow parts of your subconscious to help you process the ways that you really feel about something or might sense something on a deeper level that doesn't have a, a sort of conscious component to it just yet.
0: Tyler, would you give us a really specific example, maybe one that blow our minds or get us to think a little bit differently?
1: Yeah. So a specific thing on that dream that I do a lot is if I'm really wrestling with something before going to bed. So in the jungle, they're they're big believers in dreams, Um, and you know a lot of their stories. It's all metaphor. You know, metaphor is a valid way of communicating from deeper parts of of the human being. So what I'll do is I'm, I'm like, man, I'm really worked up about you know, my head of marketing and how do I communicate with her about this? And I, just, you know, even a little paragraph, just kind of journal, just think about it, put it in my head, go to sleep. First thing, I wake up write down my dream. And most of the time I'm always like, oh yeah, the yellow school bus and the fig tree, like, oh, have, this is all just utterly, utterly meaningless. But as I sit there and sit with it, my, my, the clarity about my feelings towards the situation really emerges. So it's a, it's like, um, like a black light in a way into like, you know, I'm like, oh, I just feel, feel kind of uneasy. It's like, oh, actually, you know what that is? I feel really ashamed about that, huh? Because I can see the way that, like, that weight on that, you know, there's this big weight on my stomach in the dream this clown was standing on top of. It. It's like, oh, you know what? That, that thing feels like the shame that I feel when, you know, she needed me to do this thing for her last week and I didn't do it. And I'm actually just feel really ashamed and guilty. And, okay, so, whoa, that's really helpful to see for what that feeling is. Then, all right, with that in mind, what's the most kind and effective way I can relate to her in the situation without just having it under the surface and sort of guiding me or ruling me unconsciously. So I think some of those ways of sort of dancing back and forth between very conscious, like I'm in a journal, but then not just, oh, I'm just going to look at my conscious mind and just rant, but then sort of dip it back into the subconscious and then bring it from the subconscious, then back into the conscious mind.
0: That's really cool. I've got a friend, the founder, uh, Drew Canoli, founder of Organifi. I don't know if you heard of that or not, but Um, Same thing. He really utilizes his subconscious and his dreams to operate in life and in business. And I just find it fascinating. You know, there's so much that I think we're not tapped into yet.
1: Yeah, there's so many examples. Like one of my favorite ones is Napoleon. Like Napoleon was known for being like the thick of battle and he would go into his tent and nap for like 15 or 20 minutes. (laughs) Um, And then would come out and just have these like, you know, crazy radical ways to to win the battles. Um, (laughs) but he was just adamant about it. Um, so I mean, there's all sorts of examples of people who can again, tread on that edge. And I think so much about is learning to edge walk. I think even very simple practices like meditation. It's like when you're meditating and you get that itch to scratch your nose, how do you be with that sensation and not just respond and sort of be in that like presence of discomfort and then learn to respond in a more effective way. I mean, there's many ways to play that game, but I think anything that sort of Consciously puts you at that edge of needing to see your impulsive response, sit with what the deeper motivation is, and then, um, you know, find a, a better route forward.
0: So, do you have this built into your day? I mean, as a really busy entrepreneur, you got your hands on everything right now. Have you built this time to listen to your subconscious into your day, or is it literally just during your your sleep?
1: Um, so, I would say the most. Probably like the most simple but consistent thing that I do, which I wouldn't say is necessarily built into my day programmatically, but more just something I do is I spend a lot of time walking. So I'm rarely stationary. If I'm on phone calls, I'm often walking. If I'm between calls, I'm kind of walking, looking, shaking my body out, stretching. There's something for me about um keeping the spaciousness that allows me to process what's going on better. So it's something about like keeping keeping my body open, keep my mind open, looking to the sky, and just not getting consumed by my texts and my inbox. Um, I find to be extremely effective for me, um, and I think particularly in the world of entrepreneurship, where you're looking for white space. I mean, you need to have the big perspective. Um, that simple practice of sort of active moving, stretching, walking, just taking 10 minutes, then I look at my phone and just walk down the street. Um, not very sophisticated. I wouldn't say particularly shamanic, but on a day-to-day basis that's maybe one of the most singularly effective things. The other specific thing that I do that I'm really big on is um I do my very best, I'm not always perfect by any means, to not look at my phone for at least 20 minutes when I wake up. Mm, I find that if I like track very specific things that sort of put like kinks in the hose of my mind, if I go from like dream resting space immediately into my inbox, it jolts me and like locks me and it like creates a certain level of rigidity um, in my system that stays pretty much throughout the day if I track it. Um, but if I wake up, just like breathe a little bit, walk outside for a second, have a cup of tea, even 15, 20 minutes, and then get into it, I'm able to like get the fluidity of myself and sort of ride above that wave as best as possible depending on the day. Um yeah, I feel like that very simple thing is is quite effective for me too.
0: It's funny, my wife and I have a lot of the same rituals that you're talking about, and they are game changers for our life, for our business, for our relationship, for everything. So I love that you shared that. All right, so I, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit. How long did you spend in the range in the rainforest?
1: Uh, so I've I've lived lived down there. I probably spent about two and a half years down there, total total. But I've been back and forth. Uh, probably more like three. But I've been back and forth down for the last ten years.
0: And it was that experience down there that kind of gave you the idea or spurred on the start of Runa. Is that right?
1: Yeah, you know, it all came about very tangentially. You know, I, was, I really got on this uh, bizarre kick of studying native languages um, and got a Fulbright grant when I was graduating to go back and, and do that research, which was my dream. Um, but through a variety of experiences, both on the one hand, really seeing how difficult. The reality is for these communities where they have so much knowledge, but the way that they make money to send their kids to school is cutting down trees or burning rainforest to plant some cash crops. Um, and the more I saw that and the more I saw that these communities don't want to do that. It's not how they want to live, but you know, if it's a choice between not sending their kid to school or, you know, not getting to pay for something, their family to get an emergency surgery, if that's what's needed, then, uh, there's no other choice. Um, so there was that, and also really being drawn to the creative pursuit of business. I kind of stumbled in this entrepreneurship class my last semester in college, and, uh, we had to write a business plan and throw out this kind of crackpot idea of starting a beverage company made from this one caffeinated Amazonian tea leaf. Um, and as we started getting in the process, just was really captivated by the, the poetry of it, for lack of a better word, it just felt like this living dynamic way to, um, quite literally translate a dream into reality. You know, I, I think people often are like shamanism and business. Like that's a random, that's a random hodgepodge <laughs> of interest you got, Ty. But for me, I mean, you literally think about what a business is or an entrepreneurship, an entrepreneurial venture, you are translating something that does not exist from space into reality. <laughs> oh. And the most like uh, clear definition in my experience of what these spiritual traditions aim to do is to have that direct connection between, those ephemeral sort of non-material parts of ourself and be able to bring those through in reality, you know, our deepest prayers, our best intentions, our best thoughts. Um, and so that translation process, um, I think business captivated me in a way as something just very real, you know, that wasn't just research and publishing papers.
0: Uh, you said something that I don't want to skip over. Cause I think this is a really important part of the story. Tell me about the moment where, you know, you're, you're sitting there face to face with these people that are literally cutting down and ruining their ecosystem just to be able to put food on the table—like, how did that shift you?
1: Yeah, so you know, one afternoon, um, you know, because I'd often wake up and hear chainsaws cutting down trees, and uh, and one afternoon, um, a friend of mine in the village was coming back with some, you know, huge old tree um, that he just told me the story about how one of his you know, grandfather's spirits lived in this tree. And, you know, me and my, like, Northern California environmental um, arrogance, like, huffed over to him, like, you know, just ready to, like, get up on his face and was like, hey, man, you know, you told me this really kind of cool story about your grandpa's spirit, but that's a big tree you just cut down. Like, how do you possibly reconcile that? And he just looked at me. He's like, well, hey, man, if you had the choice, what would you do? Would you cut down a tree or would you not send your kid to school? Whoa. I'm like, oh
0: uh, <laughs> whoa. And how'd you like answer? I'm so curious. Did What'd you say back?
1: I was just blank. I mean, I just, I was like, Phew. I mean, it took me a second to even recover myself. And I think just sort of like mumbled my way away and then lied in my hammock for five hours in like a bit of a hole. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that hit me pretty hard. Um, and you know, I, I think that's also what's such a cool mm-hmm. opportunity mm-hmm. in the world right now for sort of social entrepreneurship is recognizing that, um, Business can play a lot of these roles where markets are a great way to help people. Like these people want money. Like they're not just living off in the jungle by themselves anymore. Globalized society is part of their world, period, period, period. Um, And they want education. You know, plants are amazing at treating a lot of things, they're not great at treating broken legs. (laughs) So, you know, uh, people need cash to get to hospitals and pay for care and that sort of stuff. Um, So, if we can use business as a way to give them something, give them a market where they can sell local products that are sustainably produced, that's part of their heritage, that's grown in harmony with the rainforest, that um, it can help reconcile these pieces in a way which, um, you know, hasn't been seen much
0: before. And that kind of became the start of Runa, like literally this opportunity to create jobs where they are no longer ruining their surroundings in order to put food on the table.
1: Yeah, we basically, you know, the, the kind of core thesis of Runa was um, if we can get these farmers to plant and grow these this specific kind of tea leaf um, in the rainforest. So they basically have a way of growing these leaves under the canopy of the forest. So it's a way to create income from land that's not degraded. And then we can create a market to sell lots and lots and lots of those leaves. That that's a, a very effective way to create income, raise standard of living, and, and support the ecosystem. Um, yeah, and the leaf the leaf we um, commercialize it's a leaf called guayusa. A little bit strange to pronounce. Uh, Sometimes we joke we say "Guayusa happy as a very (laughs) kitschy and completely stupid yet very effective way of remembering the word guayusa. Um, It's a caffeinated leaf. It's actually in the holly family. It's this really rare leaf that had never ever commercially or been commercially produced before. Um, But it's very high in caffeine, very high in polyphenols. Um, It gives this really unique kind of uh, sustained energy. I'm very caffeine sensitive, which is part of the reason I fell in love with it. It's this really nice sort of like lucid bright um energy you get from it that's not uh you know not agitated um yeah so we wrote the business plan we knew ultimately that we wanted to sell energy drinks that was kind of our ultimate vision was to compete with red bull and monster uh audacious as it was um, but we started selling loose leaf tea and tea bags and iced teas and and ultimately got to the energy drink which is our our star product
0: Man, I love it. It's such a cool story, and, and you've accomplished what you set out to do, and that is you've created these sustainable jobs, so to speak. I'm assuming you go back and visit quite often, right?
1: I do, yeah, with, uh, with baby coming. Uh, jungle travel is, is uh, getting limited, <laughs> but um, but my wife spent a bunch of time down there too, and um, my goal is to only speak Spanish to our daughter, so she learns and gets to spend some time down there too. So we're we're seeing how life unfolds to get to be down there. Uh, more often, but what does it mean to to
0: literally see your dream, uh, you know, become tangible like that and for these people to have a better quality of life because of what you've done?
1: Uh, you know, I would say, I mean, at some level, of course it feels amazing. And I would say it is a personal process where I would say my more frequent feeling about it is not like, ah, we did it. It's just so amazing. So good. So good it's difficult for me to get beyond my sort of incessant thinking of like, ah, oh, we didn't do that well enough. Mm. And man, like, man, yeah, that yeah, that, that guy I used to be friends with down there who like we had that huge falling out. Like, man, that's really hard. I wish I would have done something different or um, like it's, you know, I think there is this imaginary like, oh, you know, we got 3,000 farmers and we sold the company and like, you know, it's all good. But even, af- even after that, I, I feel like it's hard for me to, feel as like just, um, abundantly good about it as maybe I could or should. Um, so yeah, I I think it's a journey when you're just sort of that much in the weeds with something to be able to, um, just really focus on, on all the good. And, uh, you know, I think that's probably part of my personality and a lot of entrepreneurs is I'm a dangerous perfectionist and, you know, always looking at at what more can be done. Um, but I think it's also part of my practices to, take the time to just be grateful for what is working and the impact that's there and um, not engage the parts of my mind that just want to see, see the pieces that need to be fixed.
0: It's funny. I think that's a common thread for so many of us as entrepreneurs though. I think we all really struggle with that. I did want to ask you, what does Runa mean? I mean, I know the answer, but for all the listeners.
1: Yeah. So Runa, the word Runa um, comes from the Quichua language, uh, the quichua are the indigenous group who we work with in Ecuador. Um, and it was a name that actually came through a dream. Uh, one of our, our partners down there had this incredible dream, uh, that basically we need to carry this name forward. Um, and in the Quechua culture, well, for a lot of the different tribes, they, they use a lot of the same plants across the Amazon. Like there's probably a solid one or two dozen sort of main medicinal plants that are very widely used, um, among different tribes. But for the most part, lots of tribes have one plant that's like their apex plant. So you know, plant like chirimcango or Chiricaspis, its called in uh, for the Zapara in Ecuador. Um, for them, that's like their like plant of all plants. It's like their like number one connection to their culture and their land and everything. Whereas for another tribe, that's like, oh yeah, we use Chiricaspi to you know treat X, Y, and Z, or like you know do X, Y, and Z for hunting. Um, but and so other tribes with guayusa use it here and there for specific things. For the quichua, it's like their number one plant. Like they say, it's the blood of their culture. It's the blood of their people. And part of what um, drinking it and having a relationship to it means to them is it makes them, what they say, it makes them runa. And runa means uh, fully alive. Like it means the spirit of being fully alive. It also very simply and often used to mean person. But more deeply, it means what it means to be a person. So it's not just you're in a physical body. You were born. Props to you. Like you're a human. In their view, um, to be runa, to be a human, to really be fully alive, it's to carry an awareness and to carry responsibility and a connection to your community, a connection to your dreams and your ancestors, an awareness of the world around you. And only by living that way, you truly like earn the right to be alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that plants like Waiyusa, the morning ceremony they have where they all drink Waiyusa together around the fire, um, these traditions and these relationships to these plants and the world around them help sort of weave that relationship of aliveness.
0: Um, Yeah. I love that definition of what it truly means to be alive and the way they view it, because let's be honest, especially in Western culture here, probably the bulk majority of us are guilty of not being truly alive in terms of what runa means.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, you know, a lot of what we have to learn from uh, some of those communities down there. And, you know, even part of the, uh, the challenge is how we find ways to translate that to, our daily lives up here but just that that commitment even just that idea of you know i'm not i'm not alive just because i woke up in the morning and had a cup of coffee like i need to i need to show up as the best version of myself whatever that looks like and there's like a a sort of way that we earn our earn our humanity yeah. um through the way that we live i like that a lot
0: oh man i love that earn our humanity through the way we live i've actually never heard that but that's that's extraordinary so um, a couple more things I want to talk about with Runa, just because this is such a great platform to expose all the listeners to something that oftentimes does not get talked about enough, and that is that it's certified fair trade, and it's also a mm-hmm. B Corp. So let's start with fair trade. Explain yep. to everybody what it means to be fair trade.
1: I'm so glad you asked that because it's one of my like pet passions, um, and I think people are often like, oh, yeah, I got those free trade bananas. <laughs> fair. fair trade, fair trade, fair um, trade. And so there's, to break it down for people, I mean, I'm a huge believer in fair trade. And I, you know, I've been on the ground with all the certifications. We certified 3,000 farmers and very close with the fair trade certifying agencies. And I think there can be these uh, sort of eco, I don't know what I even call it, but um, I think it's easy to be like, oh, fair trade. Yeah, it doesn't really mean anything. Or like, oh, organic. Like, yeah, it doesn't really mean anything. Is it really, you know, just some, some seal that people are putting on their packaging? So not true. Like, so, so, so not true. The amount of work uh, that goes into being fair trade or organic certified is huge, 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 huge. Um, and is it perfect? No. Is any system perfect? No. Are there certain cases where it creates much more exponential impact than others? Absolutely. Um, but it is a phenomenal way to guarantee that the producers who grew the products are getting the most income possible for that. So structurally, fair trade ultimately means two things. You know, What does fair trade mean? First, it means there's a guaranteed minimum price. So um, the best example of this and the importance of it is from the coffee industry, where coffee prices can go really high and then they can just bottom. So in like the late 90s, early 2000s, when coffee prices bottomed, it just bankrupted thousands and thousands and thousands of farmers whose entire livelihood was dependent, dependent upon coffee. You know, and don't have savings, don't have you know any any uh, social security. It's um it's their life, it's their livelihood. So what fair trade says is, hey, even you know, if price goes up, you know, producers can make more money based on higher market prices. But if prices goes down, the company assumes the downside risk and says, hey, at a minimum, I will pay you a fair minimum price for the coffee and able to buy based on those those contracts. So the guaranteed minimum price gives much more security to to producers. The second, which is a really cool piece of it, that even people who might know a bit more about the minimum price component uh, don't really know about is what are called social premium payments. And what this means is that in addition to paying money directly to each farmer for the amount of coffee or guayusa or chocolate that they grew, um, the buyer pays an additional 15% to the cooperative of farmers. You know, so if a thousand farmers are organized in an association or a cooperative, that then that cooperative gets an additional 15% on top of all the money that each single farmer made. So why this is really cool is then it's funds that the cooperative on its own gets to use to implement um, projects for the community. So it's not the buyers not telling them what they need to do, nonprofits not telling them what they need to do. They as a community have a democratic process to say, hey, we propose projects. Someone might say a oh, well, someone might say planting trees, someone might say scholarships, um, but they have a process for proposing projects, deciding on projects, executing projects, and getting to strengthen that sort of inter- internal governance capacity with their own autonomy. You know, these are funds that, this wasn't a handout, they earned this. This is an earned production bonus that then goes into further community projects to benefit the whole, in addition to the resources going to each farmer. So I think it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful system um, that's very well designed and just creates so much good. I mean, you know, we're, I think our social premium payments yearly are like 50 to 75000 about right now. Wow, um, you know, which is not huge, huge amounts of money, but in the middle of the Amazon goes a pretty long way.
0: Yeah, I'd um, imagine. Yeah, that's outstanding. I'm I'm glad you're such an advocate for it. It's something that does not get talked about enough, right? I mean, people are over there in these other parts of the world, literally being used, I guess, for a lack of a better term, so that other people can profit. And I, so I love that you're such an advocate for this and and that you're spreading the word. So now, explain to us what a B Corp is.
1: So a B corporation is, well, it's becoming a few things now. And this is where, you know, I think also in the world of social innovation, entrepreneurship, there is some lack of clarity around this, but it originally started as a third party certification um, for businesses. So basically like, you know, Runa was an LLC um, legally, but we got a third party audit and certification, basically saying that we operate as a responsible business. So B Corp basically looks at your um, employment practices, your sourcing practices, gives a quite thorough holistic analysis of uh, the integrity of which you're operating as a business and the sort of commitment to good that you have. Uh, so that's what when people talk about being B Corp certified, that's the B Corp certified. So you could be a C Corp, you could be an LLC, you could be an S Corp and get B Corp certified. What's happened over the last... Decade ish, I believe, um, is certain. There's been a movement for certain states to adopt an actual legal entity known as a B Corporation. Um, There's lots of technicalities around it, um, but they've basically written into, I believe, um, like state law saying that a company can put in its bylaws the idea that their fundamental purpose is creating good for society and not purely returns for shareholders. So it's kind of answering this kind of core question of, you know, if I'm a, if I'm an LLC and my like most core legal document of incorporation says my primary purpose is to maximize profits for shareholders, my obligation, my fiduciary obligation to my shareholders and my reason for being as a business is to maximize profit that I think broadly speaking, there's even risk that there could be lawsuits if someone decides to potentially compromise a degree of investor returns for creating social good um so what the b corp legal structure looks to do is it looks to say hey we actually want to have a formal legal legal recognition for an organization that says you know what we put forward the idea that we're here to create social good and that not only is this some like you know kooky idea or one-liner in our like bs mission statement like legally it's in our operating agreement it's in our constitution and that's who we are, and there's a legal framework to protect that. So that's that's the other layer of it and that people can do, depending on the state and different types of it, but to actually become a, a, a legal B corporation.
0: That's outstanding. And one of the things that we often talk about on this show and that I try to you know expose as much as I can— is the importance of for-purpose companies and socially conscious entrepreneurship? So, let me ask you this: How important is it for a company to be on board with a cause in order to survive these days? Is it like a make-or-break for companies and entrepreneurs? Do you think?
1: So you know, I'm I have a bit of an odd perspective on this because I feel like I feel like the common response is uh, I, I feel like the common response for people with morality, uh, which you know. <laughs> it's a, there's probably a line of sand there, which, you know, I'm not necessarily one to judge, but you know, it's like, Oh, of course, like, I think we all want to think, of course, like being a better person, treating people with respect is the most effective way to be a successful business. Like the deepest parts of me wants to believe that. And I don't, um, I don't, I, I think that business itself ultimately is a competitive game. Like the, the core nature of what it is in the like limited sense of this sort of old business definition, like we talked about, is make money, maximize returns. That game can be very effectively won through ruthless, careless ways of being. I mean, I think the history of our capitalist economy is very well proven by that. Um, I don't think there's a fundamental law that says ultimately um, being kinder and more respectful will get you better financial returns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's data now to support that and reasons to do so and all that, but. I don't think it's as black and white as that. Um, what I do think though, is that if you redefine how you look at the game, you know, if the game you're playing is not just, you know what, I'm gonna make money at all possible costs and that's all I wanna do, but the fundamental game you're playing is, I'm here to be a human and, and my goal is to be fulfilled in my life and to serve others and to have a creative pursuit and manifest abundance, that's a different game. That game is one that I don't think you can possibly win by not being deeply committed to kindness and personal growth and respect, um, whatever that looks like for you, whether that's small things, whether that's big things, whether that's a you know progressive social entrepreneurship model, or whether it's a construction company that is really high integrity with their suppliers and their customers, um, which to me goes, uh, you know, is really the the bread and butter of it. Um, so yeah, that's what I'd say. Is I, I think I wouldn't confuse the games of like, oh, to be successful in business, you can be more successful being a good person. It's like, well. If that's the game you're playing, then, you know, if just if all you care about is making money, then the kind of rules are off in the integrity game, as far as I can see. But if, if what you care about is is deeper, um, then I think the rule book really does start to look a lot brighter and a lot more promising for the space of, um, you know, those of us who, who want to do things as well as we can.
0: Well, what I think I'm really seeing, and, and I guess what I'm idealistically hoping for is that consumerism is going to determine that you are a socially conscious entrepreneur or that you have a socially conscious company and they're going to be voting with their dollars. And you know, I feel like the up and coming generations anyways are starting to live this out. Would you agree or disagree?
1: Overall, I agree. Overall, I agree. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, and that's why that's why I believe so much in organic and fair trade is because it's every, it's people voting with their dollars on a daily basis. You know, I, I think there's, in my, in my view, like very little else that we can do, when you know, every single day of the food that we buy can can be restructuring our economic system. Very simple as that. Um, and at the same time, I think there's um, unfortunate amounts of greenwashing going on, uh, and you know, the extent to which, you know, even like Runa, like I'll I'll poke holes in our own, um, our own business of. We're organic, we're fair trade, all these things. Our business is shipping around basically 95% water. (laughs) Like the core business of what we do is we put water in cans and bottles and then we ship them around the world. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, like you really want to talk about real sustainability, like that's not sustainable. Like in the in the truest truest sense of it, like that's not sustainable in any which way. You know, in the frame of our sort of consumer economy where people drink ready to drink beverages. And if someone drinks Runa instead of Red Bull, like, absolutely. I'd stand behind that. But in the bigger picture of things, you know, it's lots of one use bottles. It's a lot of fuel emissions from shipping around heavy liquid. Mm -hmm. So I guess I I try not to lose sight of the, um, I think it's easy to lose sight in the like, Oh, that thing's like got some organic peanuts in it. Like that's a good thing. It's like, well, (laughs) it's a better thing. It's definitely a better thing Buy the organic peanuts for sure. And I think we just always need to be sober about the weight of issues that we're confronting, and how, um, you know, how possible even some of these smaller things can be uh, to to chip away at the bigger picture.
0: Boy, it's pretty fascinating. We can really go down the rabbit hole with that. You know, is it is it better to create a better option for people like you have when you use the Red Bull example versus the Runa example, or is that not good enough because you're still shipping basically water around and you know all of the the downside that comes with that it's really a fascinating rabbit hole to go down all right so yeah i, I kind of want to ask you this you know before and after creating such a successful venture and before and after spending so much time in the rainforest how did you view money before all of this and how do you view money now because as you know this is a, a podcast that's very much about money mindset mm-hmm. so i really didn't care about money when i started
1: this i mean i like not just saying i mean i was like Living in the jungle, I was going to move back to study this esoteric indigenous language. Like, money was not on my radar. And my interest in starting a business was more being convinced that this was a very effective and efficient way to create the kind of change that I wanted to see. And just believing that um, the most real impact you can have is by, um, especially in these areas, improving income. Like, improving income is a magical, transformative impact in these people's lives and really carries a lot of a, um, a lot of impact behind it. Uh, you know, and then even when we were like, you know, living in Ecuador, sleeping on buses, then move back to Brooklyn, like, you know, we were just scraping by and on the journey. Um, so, and, but as, you know, I'm 32 now started running, I was 23. Um, and it is a fascinating thing where, you know, getting married, having a kid, it's this trip. I feel like it's this trip of being like the amount of time I think about budgeting and this and okay, well, you know, pay for the house and this, that, and the other, like, it's just not where I was three or five years ago. Um, And I think the practice for me is I I would just go back. I mean, it's because it's really what's like on my mind right now with my practice um, is looking, paying, choosing to pay attention to what I have. Because it's so, so, so easy for me. And I think a lot of us to get sucked into the like, okay, yeah, I got that, but I don't have that. I don't have that. I got to figure that out. I got to figure that out. And just spending more time being like, man, I'm so, so, so lucky to have a house. So lucky to have my wife and like her daughter coming. Um, Enough resources to like put good food on the table and like buy organic food because I believe in it. Like that's such a blessing. Um, So I think being really grateful for what I have there um, and then being... Uh, conscious of like what are the things that like deeply bring me joy um, and what are the things that are just nice to have um, and being I think more and more aware as time goes on especially thinking about being a dad of like what energy am I willing to put out there to make money Mm. Um, and like what what are those sacrifices Um, and it's something I think about now as well with you know some other ventures in the hopper and other things I'm involved in of knowing (laughs) very intimately what the journey is like building a business and how just horrendously exhausting and crazy making the whole process is in a way that can seem glamorous and cool on one side but it's just brutal i mean like i've taken a huge toll on my body and my mind the last 10 years that the part of me that's like oh it'd be so cool to be back in the thick of it and you know being 32 and not 23 um it's like man what would what is that? What's that real deep motivation that's gonna transcend? You know, just um, want to do something innovative or something that could be lucrative. Um, so I think again, it's just staying in touch with that deeper that deeper purpose.
0: You mentioned you're a soon-to-be father. In 20 years from now, how do you want your children to view money?
1: Oh. <sighs> um, I want them to feel very generous with it. I feel like it's something in the family. I grew up, my family is sort of loosely Quaker. Um, and I feel like there is just like a very generous spirit of just like this kind of core perspective of making sure everybody's taken care of. Um, and it's something that I feel a lot in my life of, um, you know, whether it's building a company and making sure that everybody has equity, like everybody's got to share on the upside, period, end of story, um, that I want them to sort of have this ingrained attitude that Hey, cool. If I got money, I'm, I'm buying dinner. Like, it's not, it's not, not a question. If I can, you know, friend of mine's run a marathon raise money for leukemia, like I'm going to donate, like mm-hmm. just, just have that like immediate attitude. That's not like, Oh, but I could, but do I gotta, mm-hmm. um, and even if it's like, Oh, but I do have to save more. It's like if somebody loves doing something you want to support, or there's a way that you're in a position to contribute more than someone else contribute. Man, I um, love
0: that. That's everything we stand for here, and, and that's really the common thread, the message that we're trying to pump out there. So before I ask you the very last question, where can we find you? Where can we find the book? And where can we find Runa? Uh,
1: Amazon.com is a good place to find the book.
0: Fully um, alive. We'll make sure alive. we put a link in the show yeah. notes.
1: Appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it's cool. If anybody does read it and has time to post a review, that's always always appreciated. Uh, my website's just my name, Tyler Gage, T-Y-L-E-R-G-A-G-E.com. Um, and yeah, I'll be posting more about some of the other cool stuff going and, uh, and they can, you know, people can buy Runa a lot of places depending where they live. Um, it's also on Amazon, but whole foods and big supermarket chains and lots of stuff in between.
0: Very cool. We'll make sure we have links to all that. So last question is this, give me a reason why people should be unapologetic about their pursuit of success and or wealth.
1: Well, I don't think you get there with being apologetic. Most fundamentally, um, I mean, I think that uh, I guess I'll weave it back to the thing that I talked about before: of it's that confidence to like not not let it sit and stagnate below the surface of being like, oh, I kind of want that, but I can't share it. It's like claiming it as part of your conscious self. I think there's power there, mm-hmm. um, and you know, even these shamanic traditions, they're sort of fundamentally about power. Like, how do you how do you claim something as a magnetic point? How do you like put that put that out there that then resources, support, your own awareness are going to gravitate towards that? And I think if you don't have that solid commitment, that um, it's not going to get there. And I, I guess I go back as well where um, being in a position to be to provide for others and to be in a position where you can be abundant and generous is a beautiful thing. It's a really really beautiful thing. Um, and if that's part of Part of the mission of gaining those resources, then may may the power be with everybody to to achieve that.
0: Mm, I love it. Great answer. Um, thank you so much for your time, Tyler. This conversation was really just a great one because you shed a light on a lot of things that does not get talked about quite enough. So thank you and congrats on all your success.
1: Thanks so much, Chris. I really appreciate it.
0: Totally my pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous